Hello, and welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people that teach it. I'm your host, Dr. Jill Stoltz, and in this episode, I sit down with one of our curators, Adam Irby, who you've met before, and we're going to talk about some fun things that have been going on in the mansion. Uh, now, as a friendly reminder, uh, we are open 365 days a year, uh, mostly. Sometimes there's snow and they, they make us close. But uh, if you want to see the mansion in, uh, in person and, and see all the fun things that Adam and his team have been up to, uh, be sure to stop by and say hi. Hi, Adam. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on to the show again. Thank you, Jack. It's exciting. This is the first time I've gotten to interview you. <laughs> it, yeah. it is. It is. Uh, but uh, it, fortunately, it's still fairly early, so we're not drinking yet. Um, so you guys have been up to some interesting things, huh? Yes, we have. So just this past month, we opened uh, the front parlor, uh, one of the principal entertaining spaces in the mansion after a two-year uh, restoration. We um, got two years of restoration and more than five years of research. Um, we really got started on the project when uh, this document, the Fairfax Account Book, showed up at auction in September of 2013. Uh, the document was really incredible because it told us it, ha- it had a listing of furniture in it that was purchased by George William Fairfax, George Washington's close friend and neighbor who lived at Belvoir Plantation uh, in 1763. What was really important about this document to us is that after George William Fairfax moved back to England in, 17, in, the, uh, in 1773, he had, there was a sale of all of the furniture in the house, and George Washington purchased a large portion of this. Most of that furniture has sort of disappeared today, but he was also given some furniture. And the furniture that he was given was a, an elaborate suite of seating furniture that the Fairfaxes used in the blue dressing chamber at Belvoir, and that George Washington brought to the parlor and used at Mount Vernon. Now, prior to this ledger showing up, or the account book showing up, we really had very little idea about the furniture in the space, other than knowing that the upholstery on it was blue. The furniture that uh, is listed in the in this in this account book is listed in incredible detail. None of these pieces survive, but it's listed in incredible detail so that we could use the documentary reference of what was written down and we can compare it to 18th century furniture that we know that was documented in England. And using those two sources, we were able to come up with a composite and reconstruct the suite of furniture as the Washingtons would have seen it in the room. Um, That process has taken... Uh, five years to from sort of start to finish, and it really transforms the space from one that really seemed not too far off from the dining room, sort of a, a typical Chesapeake parlor, uh, to one that has these magnificent this magnificent suite of furniture that is com- each chair is called a back stool and it's a compl- completely upholstered on the back and on the seat, and then one of the first sofas to show up in uh, 18th century. Virginia. Um, this this furniture was so expensive because of the elaborate use of textiles on it, and it was more comfortable than anything uh, Virginians had ever really sat on before. <laughs> so there's a, a different a different sort of a take on uh, on furniture in the mansion. I'm sorry. I just I just love the the notion. It was more comfortable than Virginians had ever sat on before. I just like I just have this image in my head of George Washington sitting down, and just being like, "Oh, this is." Martha, come sit on this. this Absolutely, is- and I think that's almost probably how it was when it showed up at Belvoir. Yeah. These chairs are 
heavily upholstered, very comfortable, um, and they they um, they really provided a level of comfort that's different from the wooden back, stiff back chairs that you see in just about every other space. So they really transformed the rooms both at Belvoir and at Mount Vernon into a, a luxurious space. So just like probably most Americans today, did George Washington just kick back on his sofa and harpsichord and chill or like what did did he kick back on the sofa um so i think that's a good question sofas yes there is that is a an important point sofas introduced sofas are are introduced uh in england in the late 17th century they introduce a more relaxed style of seating there are portraits from the 18th century that show people show people particularly women lounging in sofas and it's a more casual style of seating than sitting in a stiff back chair and that is very different um, than what they would washington's uh, would have known before now what's interesting about that is that sofas catch on in the northern states say from Philadelphia up to Boston, but not in by the the middle of the century, but not in Virginia. So we believe that the sofa that we have that the Washingtons had um, when it arrived with the Fairfaxes was the first documented sofa to show up in 18th century Virginia, which I think is a pretty cool thing. First in war, first in peace, first in loungewear. First in lounge in lounging, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Our marketing department will be all over that one. Exactly. Um, well, I so well that's striking to me. Why do we know why Northerners were 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 lounging on sofas more than Southerners that could afford a sofa? There, that's a good question. I mean, it could be that the the culture there was a there was a cultural sh- difference mm-hmm. that. Um, the the northern colonies were more um, that there was there was a more casual nature to the to the northern colonies. One so that of, just strikes me, you know, the, the the normal stereotype when you I think I mean, at least when I think of the difference between the northern colonies, like you normally think of you know the northern New England Protestants, yeah. like you, got, you think they'd want an uncomfortable chair just because it's some form of penance, whereas you normally associate especially plantation owners with a little more. Absolutely, lounging. Absolutely. Now, and here's where I think it, here's right. the difference. I think so. The places that sofas show up are Philadelphia and Boston, and the areas in between. Those are large cities that have established established upholstery shops mm. that are able to produce such expensive pieces of furniture. For Virginians, on the other hand, the the there isn't enough business and there not aren't as many sort of major metropolitan areas to make these pieces of furniture. Um, so there's there's not as much impetus to make it. So if Virginians wanted a sofa, where did they have to get it? They got mm-hmm. it imported from England. And that was an added level of an expense that maybe Virginians weren't quite prepared to go to. And I think that's probably the reason that we don't we didn't have them in 18th century Virginia. They really only show up in Virginia inventories in the 1790s. And are they not? Would say a Virginian or a South Carolinian not? Are they are they purchasing it from England because it's more prestigious to do that, or is there a reason they're not purchasing them from Philadelphia or Boston? So, 
if for for Virginians if in I'm the period, if I'm going to pay shipping, I might as well get the English one. Well, also the Virginians and South Carolinians, their their connections, their commercial connections were closer to London and mm-hmm. to Liverpool and those places than they were to Philadelphia, New York, or Boston. So. Washington, when Washington wanted some a piece of furniture, he wrote to his agent in London who also sold his tobacco, and he went out onto the streets of London and found a piece of furniture and sent it to George Washington. So there was a it's it seems sort of counterintuitive to us, but their financial connections were over yeah, there. Yeah, because because their their credit accounts for the tobacco are all tied up in London, exactly. Scotland. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And this is, of course, all pre-revolution. This is pre-revolution. And one more thing on that point, yeah. and I will—I want to address the pre-revolution thing. So the um, so well, look, let's just go right into the oh uh, the the thing I wanted to address with is with the textiles. Textiles, we can't conceive of how expensive they were mm-hmm. in 18th century America. Um, a bed was often one of if not the most expensive object someone owned, it was one of the top two or three objects somebody owned. So in order to make a bed and to have all of the materials necessary, it required that the craftsmen have a lot of capital. And in Virginia, that just wasn't as easy. Um, there were people who could make furniture for case mm-hmm. pieces and um, objects like that, but for beds and for upholstered goods, the, the best source was England. So it's a, it's an economic thing. On the revolution, um, that's a really important question and one we one that I've been that's very interesting to me because it when with furnishings you sort of if you have enough documentary evidence it ties you back to the economic history and the social mm-hmm. history of a person. So what happens in the seventeen seventies with George Washington is he's cutting those ties with England and um and so when he buys the belt he buys the bulk of the Belvoir furniture, he has cut off a lot of his ties with Robert Carey and company in England and we're also on the sort of edge of the American Revolution. But also another really important thing happens with Washington at that point, and he goes to Philadelphia. And when he went to Philadelphia, he bought a number of beds and bedding to bring back here. He's there for the Constitution Convention, <laughs> meets um Meets a member of the Chu family who's just bought from John Ross, this mm-hmm. one, this upholsterer in Philadelphia. And what does Washington do? He buys the bedding to bring back here to Mount Vernon. So he's breaking away from the system, and that's where we really see the clear break. Now, London furniture is always sort of the most fashionable furniture, mm-hmm. and people really wanted it. So Washington buys buys lots of furniture from George William Fairfax because it does have that higher status. So that can't be discounted either. Mm -hmm. So important question then. We normally in school books write it as no taxation representation without representation. Mm -hmm. Are you suggesting that American independence may, may have been an attempt to get better seating? In our house, <laughs> I mean, is this is this something maybe we're not paying attention to enough to in the historical world? I mean, it, it could be. I think these that in that's an interesting question because there are, are people cranky because they don't have good posture in their seats, Adam. <laughs> I mean, this is it's it's entirely possible, but it sort of leads to the subtleties that I, I think material culture and 
the the world of objects really tease out mm-hmm. about individual stories that lead to a much broader picture uh, when you read those and when you understand them. And that's why getting these things right in our presentation of the mansion is so important um, because it really it informs people about what people believe about George Washington, about Martha Washington, and about the conditions of the the lives of the enslaved people who lived here at Mount Vernon. Yeah, no, and and and, and you know, to on a more serious note, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as as is one of the th- ways we talk about George Washington's sort of path to radicalization here is because of economics, and mm-hmm. for many Americans in the Revolutionary Era, it, it was because of you know, it's sort of oversimplified in American discourse, I think, of no taxation with representation, but mm-hmm. it's in large part a rejection of a mercantilist system, which is hindering the ability for commerce between the colonies because it's about an extractive uh, situation between the colonies and the metropole. Um, so I guess it is sort of fair to say to some extent that SOFAs did have something to do with Absolutely. radicalization for many Americans because they don't have access to the ability to buy something, even if it is only what Philadelphia would be 200, 150 miles from something like that. Mount Vernon, not that far, except, you know, instead Washington's got to order a sofa for 4,000 miles. Absolutely. So one, one other point to make about that is that we can't, um, there's sort of the, a concept in sort of popular American history that there's sort of pre let revolution, Mm -hmm. The revolution breaks ties with England entirely, and then we're our new independent American uh, system here. And if you're looking at the furniture and the decorative arts in the house, that's just not true. And it's fascinating to me that right on the on Washington's return, he's working on the new room. Um, at, right after the revolution, he's working on the new room, and he writes to Samuel Vaughan, this man who's lived in London, right outside of London, um, is in touch with all the sort of the great architects and the people who were very, um, th- who are who are style influencers there. And what does Washington ask him when he's when he's doing that? He asks, "What is fashionable mm-hmm. in England?" And so he still has his eye to the style centers. Now, a little bit later on, that changes a little bit, and it becomes more. Paris as we're going in the 1780s and 1790s, and Washington ends up with a lot of French furniture in the presidential residence. But the pull of these major metropoles Mm -hmm. is really important um, even after the Revolution. Yeah, I mean, I I think back to, you know, even some of the debates in Parliament over whether the Revolutionary War is even worth fighting, Mm -hmm. and you have members of Parliament saying they're still going to have to buy stuff from us later like why, why even have like if they want a little political independence just let them have it they're still going to do most of their commerce with us absolutely this this is just this is just wasting money absolutely and these commercial ties stay on for so long yeah it's really with the and you can contribute i'm sure more than i can but the, with the war of 1812 that we get sort of get a lot of separation yeah it's it's i mean just there's not the manufacturing ability in in even if exactly. even if all of a sudden people are dedicated to the notion of buying American mm-hmm. there, there just isn't the manufacturing capability in the newly independent states to support any demand absolutely you absolutely. Know, so, and, uh, you know and, unless you're talking sort of very specific um, token statements like you know Washington's first inaugural he makes sure, sure he gets a coat made of England 
or uh, sorry, no, uh, a coat made from from United States manufacturers, right? I mean, that's symbolic, but absolutely, we're still buying a lot of clothes from buying from England. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so the, the textiles are coming from there. The we don't have a great uh, metals industry here in the United States. Glass, glassware, ceramics, all of these things. There are such incredibly built-up industries in in England that are able to supply this stuff well into the 19th century. Yeah, well, and that's why you get, uh, you know, Hamilton and some of the the arguments for protective tariffs in the early days of the United States is is to help build up some sort of nascent American manufacturing Absolutely. industry. You know, we Absolutely. Are, we are far from a superpower. Exactly, in, exactly. Uh well, back to the to the newly restored room. I mean, yes. so what uh, is you all just you know, so? I, I know you made discoveries just by the very nature of the ledger. Is there anything sort of else that you all discovered in the process of restoring the new room? Well, let's start with there were a number of discoveries. Okay. With any space we have, we sort of we go into it with our our minds wide open to whatever the re- wherever the research will take us, which is a is a wonderful process. Um, one of the most important discoveries we made was the color of the room. The color of the room changed. You might remember that it was a bright um, Prussian blue color in the past, and um, and we've now returned that to a cream or stone color that we think is more akin to what Washington had or the color Washington had uh, during his lifetime. Now, the change in that is really comes from a change in advance in technology. Uh, when they first did the paint analysis in, on the mansion in the early 1980s, um, they couldn't see as many layers of paint under mm-hmm. the microscope as we can today. But today we have super high magnification, and where there there's a layer of cream, where it might have looked like just one layer of cream in the 80s, you can see that there are four or five different layers of cream that are distinct and different that are stacked up on top of each other. So we redid the, the, the paint analysis. We tied it to documentary evidence of Washington making changes to the mansion, but we also, and, and, but, and also later changes to the mansion, um, but we also sort of re-looked at the Washington sources they, that they, they were using at the time. One of the sources they were, that was used is a document Washington wrote to Tobias Lear after he left Philadelphia. He's always buying things from mm-hmm. Philadelphia. Wrote after he comes back from Philadelphia, and he says he wanted a carpet for his blue parlor. And he said that he wanted the principal flowers in the carpet to be blue. Um, and if you stopped right there, you would say, oh, the, the, the parlor is blue. But he says so as to accord with the furniture in the room. Mm-hmm. And as we know, the furniture that the Fairfax has sent is this bright, vibrant, Saxon blue color. Um, so he wasn't talking about the walls. There was a layer of blue that was found in the 1980s. It is there. But we've been able, with this most recent um, research effort, to tie that layer to changes that occurred in the 1860s uh, when, there was, when the room was painted blue. We've also found a number of great original objects um, that were in the space and survive today in fragmentary condition. Uh, one of the most impressive of these is the looking glass that was in the front parlor between the two mirrors, uh, between the two windows. The looking glass is, um, is, was in the parlor, was one that Washington's bought during the presidency. There's a great documentary record to it. And it was bought by, uh, it was given to Nellie Custis 
in Martha Washington's will. And that piece eventually was sold in the 1870s to the Smithsonian Institution, where it is today. Um, it survives in fragmentary condition, so we created a replica. Uh, Eli Wilner in New York created a replica for us of that looking glass and replaces the missing pieces in it so it looks as it would have mm-hmm. looked when the Washingtons had it in the mansion. Um, it's a particularly evocative object because Martha specifically picked it out to give it to Nellie Custis. Um, it's one of the few that, few documented items in her will that she gives to one person. Did the sofa survive? Unfortunately, none of the seating furniture survived. Um, there was, there is a chair in the collection that, and this is sort of a tale of how, how research takes you down mm-hmm. rabbit holes sometimes. There is a chair in the collection that is a backstool that's a, that, um, that had a history of descent with the Washingtons. And we did detailed uh, research into this piece to see if it was one of the eight that was in the front parlor. What turned out, what it turned out to be was that the piece was actually, the, the one that descended is actually an American-made um, mm, chair, like which it mm. can't be it. Mm-mm. So, um, it, which is, is sort of funny because typically everybody wants to find that American-made piece of furniture because that's the, the highly valuable thing on the marketplace today. But for us, we really wanted to find an English <laughs> English chair, so that one wasn't it. So the way we did it um, was we used the documentary evidence and working, I worked with a, an upholstery scholar uh, who's formerly at the Victorian Albert Museum named Lucy Wood, and we went to a couple of English country houses and looked at chairs, backstools that just survived in their attic. Some of them were in just absolutely falling apart condition. And we cataloged them, and we compared them to the documentary evidence. We did the same thing with the sofa, and then we re- we um, took careful measurements, and the the organizations who owned them graciously allowed us to reproduce them. And so Leroy Graves of Colonial Williamsburg made these reproductions in an exacting way, just as they would have been in the 18th century. So there's a reproduction of the sofa. There's a reproduction of the sofa in the room. Since it's a reproduction, I have to ask, will you let me lounge on it? Ah, we'll have to think about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, while we're thinking about that, uh, what... What are, what are uh, you know, you mentioned that you, you've all discovered that it was an American-made sofa or, or American-made chair. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, obviously, you guys are also going to do a lot of documentary research to figure out the provenance of an artifact. But are there, are there um, just craftsmanship and stylistic, how do you figure that out other than is it, is it just through documentary evidence or is there something unique about an American style as opposed to what's going on in England at the same time? Absolutely. So sometimes you can't tell. Okay. And sometimes something will be made exactly the same in England and as it is in America. But oftentimes there are stylistic cues or material choices that make it different. Um, often, so for this particular chair, the reason we knew it was American is because the woods used as secondary woods, so the woods you didn't see, mm-hmm. were yet one was yellow pine, and it's, that's a wood that's only yeah. used in America. Um, so there are specific woods for furniture 
on each side of the Atlantic, and you can you can differentiate based on that. Um, but they're also stylistic cues. This the um, the back stools are really so they're not a lot of back stools that survive. So it's and they're all very similar. So stylistically, you can't tell them apart. But in the general world of furniture, there are a lot of stylistic details that are individual to say a place like Philadelphia, New York, Boston. And so after years of study, I can look at a chair mm-hmm. and say, that's Boston based on the ball and claw feet or the, the way that leg is made or the way something is fitted together. So those are, um, those are the ways we, we take a look in addition to, um, in addition to just the, the regular documentary evidence. Now, is that just a function of uh, the individual craftsmen in those cities? Is it? Is it? Well, I mean, I guess none of these have to be either or. Uh, is it a function of the craftsmen in those cities? Uh, either or? Is it, it? Is it sort of market demand in those cities? Where Where do those different city styles come from? It, to make a long story short, we don't really know. Okay, um, but one of the ways I look at it. Um, is I mean it's 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 sort of both. Um, there are period so there's there are generations of craftsmen who oftentimes in, in different cities who one is trained after the the next and they often continue the same stylistic mm-hmm. details. Newport, Rhode Island is a great example of that. There are these two families, the Goddards and the Townsends, who keep on making same things in the same way for most of the 18th century. Um, Then there are places like Philadelphia where you have constant infusions of craftsmen coming from England, and with each infusion of craftsmen, you get a little bit of a change in style. Mm. But then in addition to all of that, there um, there, there are stylistic things that people just like in a particular region, Mm -hmm. like a high chest, which is a, a, a chest that's, is a sort of a big um, chest on chest that's up on four legs. That's a very common thing in Philadelphia. It's gone out of fashion in England, but Philadelphians really like it. So there are influences coming from all sorts of all, all sorts of places. So it's not just one thing. But um, why they sort of they sort of calcify in different regions, we don't mm-hmm. entirely know. Okay. Um. Well, I think we're getting to the end of our, our time here. You know, you guys have just wrapped up uh, the new room. What's next? Uh, we have a lot coming up in the mansion. The first project we're working on is the Central Passage. Okay. So the, you, uh, listeners may recall that last year we painted the woodwork from that uh, the, the, the mahogany graining uh, or the wood graining. We took it from wood graining and uh, painted it cream um, based on our most recent paint analysis, this year we are going to install wallpaper that goes from the um, from the first floor uh, up the staircase to the second floor, and so not on the paneling, on just on the on the plastered areas. And then we're going to redo our prints and uh, and and objects in that room. So that's one thing. Uh, the next thing will be the yellow bed chamber. And the yellow bed chamber is a project that uh, has been going on for a little while now. We've started making some changes to the room. But the yellow bed chamber is the chamber on the second floor that people pass through. And that room was the most elite bed chamber in the house. 
Uh, it's one that the Washingtons held out for their most sort of valued guest. Mm-hmm. And we're going to redo that bedchamber uh, using the latest documentary evidence uh, on documentary and physical evidence on what that space looked like. And hopefully that room will, uh, will open next year. Great. Well, I think, you know, all of this is a, is a great example of the and, and a reason why uh, if if our listeners have been to Mount Vernon before but haven't been in a while, it's definitely always worthwhile to keep coming back and visiting because you guys are always advancing the scholarship and always uh, redoing the house, uh, which I, I, I don't think enough people sort of um, – Realize you even all do that work or even appreciate just the constant work that is uh, constantly improving the house, both in terms of preserving it, just to make sure it doesn't fall into the Potomac River, uh, but also just constantly improving the scholarship, uh, the scholarly document that is the house. Um, I I think for those of us that work in, uh, uh, you know, the, the history PhD world, we're always a little jealous of what you all can do because once we hit... You know, print and that book is off with the editors. Uh, not that there's any mistakes in my book. Never, of course, never. But uh, if I were to find one, you know, I, I can't exactly go back and and fix it. Whereas uh, you all can just constantly improve uh, the scholarly document, which is just so impressive. I think uh, that also you all don't just hit print and let it stand. That we are, you all are constantly uh, sort of pushing the envelope and the scholarship. Uh, I think that that's a really great point. And one thing people often ask us is, well, will the mansion ever be done? Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer to that is really no. Yeah. Um, because we don't have, in 1802, Martha Washington, after Martha Washington's death, all the objects were sold off in the house or descended to family members. Um, so, And we don't have real clear one, we don't have drawings of what the interiors look like. Objects like the Fairfax account book sometimes just show up. Bef- prior to that happening, we we would have done a completely different sort of uh, restoration to the front parlor without that information mm-hmm. being there. We knew there were chairs in there. We knew there was a sofa in there. But would we have come up with the same answer? I don't think so. Um, so new information is showing up. New objects are showing up all the time, and that's pushing us forward. Um, in that room alone, we're missing three pieces of art, and this is one you'll love, Joe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one most important that went above the sofa, and we've left a space for it, we're waiting for it, is a portrait of the Marquis de Lafayette and his family mm. that Lafayette sent to George Washington after the Revolution as a gift they're great visitor accounts of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's in a little bit of beaten up shape by the end of uh, George and Martha's life. Is it still out there? We don't know. Mm-hmm. So, and then there are two other pieces as well. So, there's always something to find. I just always love the the idea that, like Adam, I really appreciate our time together. Here's a painting of me, exactly for you to hang up in your house. It just exactly. So. I'll present you the portrait I commissioned of myself later today. Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, and, you know, if, if you're not going to let me sit on, on the restored couch, uh, at least the next time you go to hop around different English country manners, maybe you can – I'm happy to come along as your valet or, or whatever need be. Come along. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks so much for coming on the show, and we look forward to having you back uh, sometime in the future. Thank you, Jack. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. 
Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.